Hey, what's up, 11 o'clock? How are we doing this morning, Rocky Peak? Hey, it is good to be with you once again. Good to be with you here in the Worship Center. Good to be joining you over in the Ridge. Welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. My name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you happen to be here in either venue for the very first time, I just want to say special welcome to you. We are excited that you're joining us and that you're going to be experiencing the service time with us this, uh, today. Um, I'm excited to jump into our time of teaching. So if you would, inside your, me- your, uh, your program that you got on your way in, there is a green and white message note sheet. As we often say, that is a great tool to help you follow along with this time of teaching. It's also a great tool. We like to provide some white space, blank space for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is specifically prompting you to walk away with or remember from our time this morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right in. Jesus, as we kick off this time of teaching, I just want to stop and focus us by saying thank you for your word. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the truth that you say that it is living and active. Your word is what transforms us, Jesus, because it is in your word that the true Jesus, the unfiltered Jesus, King Jesus is revealed. It is through your word that we experience your power, your authority, your grace, your hope, you're leading in direction for our lives. And so as we come in from various different backgrounds and seasons and situations this morning, we are all here to open up the same word to see you in a new and clear way. And so as I often pray, I pray that I as the communicator will become much, much less this morning. I pray that you as our King and the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, become much, much more. And it's in your powerful name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen. So this morning, I'm going to go ahead and continue the series we've been in for the last nine or ten weeks. Can you believe it's been that long already? This is a series called Metamorphosis Face-to-Face. Now, this is a series that's based on a letter in our New Testament, the second half of our Bible, called 2 Corinthians. And this letter was written by a key leader in the early movement of Jesus, a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. And he is addressing this letter to a group of Christ followers that about five years earlier he himself had led to the Lord who are living in and around a major Roman city at the time, the city, the city called Corinth. And the heart behind this series is that throughout 2 Corinthians, as Paul describes God's epic vision for all of humanity, Paul often comes back to the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get our English word metamorphosis, which means a gradual yet a profound change. And why the apostle often comes back to this word is because metamorphosis is a beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christ follower. That when we give our lives to Jesus, we enter into a face-to-face relationship with the risen Jesus in which we learn to listen and follow to his leading, to the leading of the Holy Spirit that is now in us. And through that, we will experience transformation so that our lives now reflect and resemble the risen King Jesus. Now today, I'm going to start by talking about something we've mentioned the last several weeks, that you can't go anywhere in 2 Corinthians without experiencing the backdrop of the tension and conflict going on between Paul and this church. The backdrop was that since Paul had left, there had been some false teachers that had moved in and began churning the church against the Apostle Paul. So Paul is experiencing significant challenges to his leadership, to his authority, with people questioning, is he really an apostle, one set by God? And one of the weapons, so to speak, that these people are using against Paul is his life. See, Paul's life was frequently a mess. Paul frequently struggled financially, relationally, socially. Paul experienced much persecution. They were living in a culture very similar to our culture. Well, only the strong survive. To be a leader, you need to be a winner. You need to take no prisoners. You need to be tough. You need to scare people into following you. And nothing about Paul's life resembled being a winner. 
And so something I've often said throughout this series is the reason why so many at the church at Corinth could not see Jesus at work and leading the life of the Apostle Paul was because they were following after the fake Jesus, a wrong Jesus. And so as Paul goes on the defensive throughout 2 Corinthians, we see that he cares very little for what they think of him, but he cares greatly about how they see Jesus. And so as we continue with that theme this morning, as we go into our passage, what Paul is going to do is he's going to confront head-on his life of suffering. And he's going to hopefully refocus the church at Corinth to see that his life of suffering is following in the pattern of Jesus' life of suffering. And that through seasons of suffering, weakness, and limitation is when we see in a new and deeper way the awesome power of God. And so if you're following along with your note sheet, you've got a section titled Jars of Clay. If you got your Bible, go ahead and open it up. You got your app, turn it on. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be starting at verse 7, and as I often say when we go into our time of Scripture, if you've got a Bible and a pan handy, if you've got an app and a highlight function, get them ready because we are going to mark and draw all over this this morning. So starting in verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Okay, last week, if you were here, the key theme was mercy. And if you remember, I asked you to double, triple, highlight, draw, make sure you get that because that was the foundation. This week, I want you to do the same with that phrase, jars of clay. For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Okay, we need to stop right there because we have a long and a beautifully rich passage we're going to be going through this morning. There is a lot in the words of the apostle that the Lord is going to use in our lives, and there's going to be times in which as we go through this passage, it's going to feel like we're drinking from a fire hose. And so to establish and set up our focus, this phrase, this metaphor, jars of clay, is the foundation for everything that's going to come after it. And so we need to stop and unpack this because in our context today, here in June 2019, we often would just continue to read past this metaphor because it doesn't mean anything to us. But if we look at what he's saying, he is saying that all human beings are jars of clay. And as Michael talked about several weeks ago, if we examine this in its historical and situational context, then what we now see is that this This metaphor that Paul is using is absolutely radical and is completely countercultural to the culture of Corinth and to our culture today. And so with that, let's spend some time unpacking and understanding what the apostle is saying. And so jars of clay, we can throw that picture up on the screen. As you look at them, there is nothing special about a jar of clay. They were incredibly common in the ancient Roman world. They housed a wide variety of foodstuff, liquids, valuables, cleaning items in the home. I would say, I would characterize them as being the Tupperware of the Roman world. As you can see, they weren't fancy looking. They were cheap. They chipped and broke easily, and there was no point in fixing it. You just threw it out and got another one. Okay, let's pause right there, because now that we start to unpack this content, I feel like Paul is hurting my pride here, because he is calling us jars of clay. But if we begin to look at his metaphor with honest eyes, what we begin to see is that the apostle is absolutely right. If you begin to strip away our outward, our exterior, our resources, our skills, our relationships, if you strip all of that away and get to the core of who we are, the truth is we are fragile creations, aren't we? We are creations that break. We are creations that crack under pressure. And this is the point that Paul is making, is that the vessel 
brings no worth in and of itself. But what gives a jar of clay its worth are the contents that it houses. And so Paul says that as jars of clay, we house God's treasure. And so to understand what he means by that, I'm going to take us back to verse 6, which is how we ended last week's passage, in which he says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And so what is the treasure that we as jars of clay house? We house the knowledge and the experience and the encounter of the real Jesus. And if you are a Christ follower, think back to your moment of repentance. Think back to that beautiful moment in which you gave your life to Jesus. What was the catalyst for that moment? You experienced who Jesus really is. You saw the unfiltered Jesus. You gave your life to him as he forgave you of your sins and resurrected you. And what's beautiful is was in that moment that we began this new journey as Christ followers and our Jesus does not go, okay, figure it out and I'll see you in heaven. But rather as we begin this new journey, he fills these jars with himself with his presence. And so now as humble jars of clay, we are filled with the power of Jesus, which is the power of creation. We are filled with the power of Jesus, which is the power of victory that conquered sin, darkness, and the grave. We are filled with the power of Jesus, which is the power of resurrection, what resurrected him, what resurrection us. We are now these humble clay jars who find our eternal worth in the contents that we house, which is the image and presence of the risen Jesus. Our worth does not come from anything we have said, we have done, or we have earned. Our worth comes from the King Jesus who dwells inside of his beloved jars of clay. And why this is so important, again, for Paul's culture, but I've often said that there's not a lot of difference between the the culture of Corinth and the culture we live in today is because the power and authority of Jesus comes into our lives to overthrow. That is a key word, to overthrow the false gods, the false idols, and the wrong Jesuses that we have been following. And so again, Paul's metaphor is radical and countercultural because Corinth, just like our culture today, idolized power and strength idolize that sense of being a take-no-prisoners winner, batter your enemies, show them why they are less and you are more. And we mentioned nothing about Paul's life displayed that value or screamed power. And so for them, their Jesus was filtered because they followed a Jesus that made sense in their current cultural values. So they would say, if we are sent by God, if we are to represent or be his apostles, we cannot be weak jars of clay. We should be strong jars of precious metal like silver and gold because then it makes sense for our winning God to come and live with us. And so what Paul is doing is by using this metaphor, he is showing that the power of Jesus overthrows that false way of thinking and the true power of God is the true that an imperfect humanity, a weak and broken humanity is in no way, shape, or form a hindrance to the power of God. True power doesn't hide from suffering in a bunker. True power, the power of Jesus, goes into the most fragile and vulnerable containers and strengthens and empowers us to not just endure 
our sufferings, weaknesses, and persecutions, but to thrive in those seasons. Paul talks about something similar in his first letter to the Corinthians. There in your note sheet, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And so with that being our foundation of what the apostle means through this metaphor, let's keep reading through this section of Scripture. And so starting at verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10, we always carry in our body the death of Jesus. Would you underline that? Death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Verse 11, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed. Would you underline that word? Revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at, is, is at work in you. And so Paul begins to describe his life of suffering. And he goes into this unique phrase that we carry with us the death of Jesus. And what he means by that is that if you go back and look at the life of Jesus as revealed in the Gospels, Jesus' life was a life of suffering. Jesus' life was a life of serving, of serving those who were not nearly as powerful as he was. Jesus' life was a life of persecution. For 30 some odd years before he, before he began his ministry, Jesus lived a humble, ordinary life. He was the son of a carpenter and became a carpenter. Jesus came from such a small town that it was mocked by other people. We see it in the Gospels. Can any good thing possibly come from Nazareth? When Jesus begins his actual ministry for three some odd years, it is a ministry that is defined by persecution and hardship. And so as Paul talks about that we are hard-pressed, that we are perplexed, that we are persecuted, that we are struck down, he is not only talking about his true experience, but he's also saying that was the experience of Jesus, and as long as we are on this side of heaven, that is the experience for all Christ followers. Jesus himself said so. It's not in your note sheet, but in John chapter 15, Jesus says that if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. But why is this so important? Because when you look at the suffering that Jesus went through, you see the ultimate power of God displayed through it you see the ultimate power of God sustaining him. When Jesus entered into our world, he chose to do so in a human body. He chose to live as a jar of clay that could be struck down and ultimately killed. Yet what sustained him, what empowered him, what grew him was the power of God. When you now compare that to the life of Paul, he was leading the same life and just as you could see the power of God in the sufferings of Jesus, you can see the power of God in the suffering of the Apostle Paul. And so when Jesus came to inaugurate a new covenant, when he said that the kingdom of heaven is near, what is meant is that there is time for a new age, a new era that is built on God's power. And it is important for us to see the real Jesus to understand a bigger sense of his power. Because often we're familiar with the power of Jesus through deliverance. And that is a beautiful truth that Jesus came to deliver us from our sin. He came to deliver us from death and hell. Jesus will at times deliver us from painful circumstances and heal us, from deliver us from painful 
seasons. And hear me, Christ followers, we should pray for the power of deliverance. Jesus himself modeled that in his prayer for us. But the temptation and trap is that for some of us, deliverance is the only way we expect Jesus to show his power. And we feel that if we are not being delivered from these circumstances, from our weaknesses, from our pain, then the power of Jesus is not at work in our lives. And so again, the apostle is teaching us what it means to say that our God is power, is that we see the great power of Jesus through empowering his clay pots to endure. We are not always delivered in a timely manner. We are not always delivered at all. But it is not a lack of power that, 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 is, because, that, that is the reason why we are not delivered. But it is because there is an opportunity for God to go show his great power that the most fragile and humble of creations will be sustained, will be empowered, and will be transformed through the most difficult and arduous of seasons and circumstances. And it can't happen on anything I do because again, I'm a clay pot. It can only happen through the supernatural power of Jesus himself. When you give your life to Jesus, you are immediately filled with that power through the Holy Spirit. And understand that when you give your life to Jesus, you are not filled with a junior varsity version of the Holy Spirit. You are not filled with the Holy Spirit that is experiencing his first day on the job. You are not given 20% of the Holy Spirit. And once you walk longer and check off certain boxes, then you'll get more and more. The moment you gave your life to Jesus, which arguably for many of you could be one of your weakest moments that led you to the knees, is the moment you received the same Spirit that rose Jesus from from the grave. And so the apostle continues in verse 13. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit, would you underline that phrase, same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. Would you underline that phrase? Raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Verse 15, all this is for your benefit so that grace, which I highlight that word grace, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And so when Paul says it is written, what he is doing is he is quoting Psalm 116 from the Old Testament. In this psalm, the psalmist was someone like Paul who had been sent by God to proclaim the good news of the Lord God, Yahweh. And like Paul, the psalmist experienced suffering and persecution on his journey. And when the psalmist says that I have experienced and I will speak, it is because through that suffering, he has experienced the awesome power of God and he will speak to it. And so now the apostle uses that to compare to his ministry in life, that just as the psalmist was filled by God's spirit and was sustained and endured in those difficult circumstances, so have I been and so will you be. Now let me do a quick sidebar here. And this is, this is uh, something that is a big tangent and a big, uh, and a big uh, value of mine, which is why I wanna do it. The apostle Paul often quotes the Old Testament to clearly remind us that the entire Bible matters. That the entire Bible is telling the one story of God. And when he says the same spirit, this psalmist in the Old Testament was filled with God's spirit, the same spirit that Paul is now filled, the same spirit that you and I are now filled with as well. Sidebar over. But he goes on to say the power of God 
is not just seen in the death of Jesus, the sufferings we live in, but we also live with the power of Jesus' resurrection. I mentioned that the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us and will one day deliver us fully. See, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. One day he will consummate the kingdom in which we will no longer be on this side of heaven. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we will one day no longer be jars of clay, but we will be bodily resurrected to be like Jesus himself. And he says that this is for your benefit. And if you were here last week, this is the theme of mercy that if you think about it, Paul had a very contentious relationship with the church at Corinth. Last week we talked about that none of us would blame Paul if he said, fine, you guys are on your own and walked away. And he, I'm sure that was tempting many times, but he talked about last week that he still loves and serves them through the power of God to give God, Paul the ability to be merciful. And so through that, he says that I have been called as an apostle to suffer on your behalf so that through my sufferings, you see that when we are weak, God is strong. And I had you underline grace. And again, Paul's heart is always for us to get a fuller picture of these truths about God. That often we focus on grace being an undeserved gift. And hear me, that is true. That is a beautiful focus, but there is a much fuller picture that that is a part of. See, grace is an undeserved gift, but what exactly is the gift of grace? It is power. To receive grace is to receive the power of God that forgives us of our sins, that defeats hell itself, that resurrects us. And grace is not meant for us to simply experience, but it's meant to transform us in that power to now be people of grace. And then his last section, starting at verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly, would you underline that word outwardly? Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, would you underline that word? Inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. Now the apostle has been through a lot. Many of you have been through a lot. He is not minimizing or discarding his suffering or your suffering, but he is comparing even our deepest suffering is small when compared to the awesome power of God. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Would you underline and highlight, fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so often, one of the idols of our culture is we focus on, do I look the part? Does my appearance display something that my heart is not? Am I Instagram presentable? Does it look like I'm strong? Does it look like I never struggle? Does it look like I'm a winner? Does it look like I never have to apologize or admit that I'm wrong because I never am, because I'm that type of person? And the reality that Paul is remembered to focus is our culture wants us to focus on that, that our outward is what gives us identity. But Paul is saying all of that is temporary. Not just will our physical bodies waste away one day, but all of our exteriors, our gifts, our resources, our relationships, these are all going to go away, and these are not capable of defining us. What God does is he defines us through a transformation of the inward, the heart. And for many of us, our passion is, do I look the right part? The better question that Paul is leading us to ask is, is my heart becoming more and more like Jesus? Because we see this even creep into the church world, don't we? That we have people that look the Christian part, don't they? That can say the right things 
that can proclaim the right things about Jesus and the Bible, that can attend church regularly, but when it comes to who they really are, when it comes to their heart, they are the farthest from the risen Jesus that anybody can possibly be. Let me illustrate this in a series of ways. The first one is, let's talk about social media. I think social media is simultaneously a paradox. That in one sense, it is a wonderful, beautiful thing. I love the social media platforms I'm active on. I think it's a great tool. I think it's a great toy at times. It's a wonderful thing. But yet simultaneously, social media can also be a dumpster on fire. And it can have you lose faith in humanity. But one thing about social media that seems to never fail is that it very quickly reveals the true heart of a person. You know, one thing that absolutely breaks my heart on the daily is not seeing debates or passionate disagreements happening on social media, but sometimes it's within those debates that I see one person saying some absolutely vile, evil things to the person they're debating with, and then you click on their bio and somewhere it says, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. What does that reveal? That they may say the right things, but their heart's in a different place. Another illustration that this led me to when I was putting this all together is that almost 20 years ago, when I was about uh, 18, I came across a really interesting book that I really enjoyed called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Now some of you are having some harsh flashbacks to your high school and college literature classes. But it's actually a pretty fascinating book. It was written by Oscar Wilde, the famous playwright, in the late 1800s. And the premise is that Dorian Gray has the right appearance. He looks good, he's handsome, he has the right power, he has uh, the right status, and he has this portrait of himself commissioned, and this portrait beautifully captured his the, 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 the appearance of perfection that he gives off. And it's looking at his portrait that Dorian Gray begins to lament that one day his appearance will wither and fade and he may not look as perfect as he does captured in this moment. And so he ends up selling his soul so that his portrait will age, but he will not, so that forever he will give this perfect appearance. And it's by having that perfect appearance that he feels empowered to engage in a hedonistic lifestyle. Throughout the book, because he feels that he's portraying the right image, he engages in vile, debauchery, immorality. He even engages in murder at certain points. And what ends up happening to his portrait in the story is that it doesn't just age, but with every sinful act, it continues to decompose, get more disgusting, and it even keeps a record of every one of his sins. And near the end, there's a point when Dorian Gray looks at the portrait and he's horrified because he realizes the truth. That picture is who I really am because that is the state of my heart. And so the focus of Paul is the focus of Jesus. You do not determine your value and worth by how you, by your exterior, by your outward, but by the Jesus that is within you. Your outward does not define you, but a heart that has been transformed gives you an identity for all of eternity. And so when he tells us to fix our eyes, and we'll talk more about this later, it is an intentional commitment. It is intentionally committing to this relationship that I will pursue and experience the presence of the King Jesus in my regular rhythms. Now that's our passage. And before we move on, we gotta do two things. One, let's take a spiritual deep breath, because that was a lot. And secondly, before we move on in our note sheet, just on behalf of all of us and with eyes open, I just simply want to say, Jesus, thank you for your power revealed in your word. And so with the time that we have left, what I want to do is I want to continue to dig into this radical but beautiful truth 
that not only is Jesus' strength revealed in our weaknesses, but it's in our weaknesses through his strength that we experience substantial transformation. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Experiencing Transformation Through Our Weaknesses. And the first fill-in is this. Transformation occurs by embracing a new paradigm of Jesus' strength. Transformation occurs by embracing a new paradigm of Jesus' strength. And so to kick off talking about this point, I want to go back to that word and concept we talked about earlier, which was that the power of Jesus has come to overthrow the false gods, the, fake, the, the false idols, the filtered fake Jesus as we often pursue. And often, those false gods, those filtered Jesus, to overthrow them means that King Jesus needs to overthrow the way we currently think and needs to instill a brand new paradigm. It's not in your note sheet this week, but many times in this series, Michael has taken us back to the apostles' words in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And in those words, he says, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, by King Jesus changing the way we think, installing a new paradigm. And he goes on to say, then we will be able to see, this, to see the will of God. Then we will be able to see Jesus as he truly is. And so with that, we need a new paradigm to see Jesus' strength displayed through our weaknesses. Now again, to explain this, we need to talk about spiritual warfare briefly like we did last week. If you were here last week when we talked about spiritual warfare, we talked about certain truths about the devil. The devil is not God's equal. The devil cannot win. He has been defeated by the cross and the empty tomb. But one thing that the devil is, is he is a brilliant brilliant tactician. And last week we talked about that often the way that the devil attacks is to begin to filter the way we see Jesus in small and subtle ways at first, and he keeps piling on those filters until suddenly, without realizing it, we are now pursuing and running after the wrong Jesus. And the devil, in his strategy, will wait for opportune times to strike, and often a key time for the devil to strike is in seasons of weakness is in seasons of suffering, is in seasons of limitations. We see this in how he tempted and struck at Jesus himself. In the temptation of Jesus, remember, Jesus entered into this world in a clay jar, a human body. We're told in the Gospels that he is in the wilderness without food and water for 40 days. Try to think and imagine how weak the emotions going on in this, the, uh, the, the vulnerability that a human would feel. And that is the moment that the devil comes in to strike. And his way of attacking is to use scripture to miss use it and filter who God is. And we see this in the Gospels, in the filters that the people of God had, the Jewish nation at the time, in which they viewed the coming Messiah. See, Jesus came and proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, and many of his people at the time missed it. They didn't see it. They didn't agree with it. They would say, no, that's not my Messiah. In today's language, it's when we say, no, that's not my Jesus. And sometimes because of that, we have a false view of the Jewish nation at the time. They didn't miss Jesus of the Messiah because they are the villains of the story. They didn't seek or want or demand at times a filtered Messiah because they were anti-God, because they wanted to be anti the word of God. Why they were view, expecting a filtered Messiah was because they were a people that were deeply suffering. The Jewish nation at the time of the Gospels were living under horrible oppression by the Roman Empire. 
The Roman Empire viewed everything about being Jewish, their race, their culture, their religion, their faith in the Lord God Yahweh as being inferior. And the Roman government wanted to erase everything about them out of their empire. And so think about the limitations, the weaknesses, the suffering that they experienced socially, that they experienced politically, that they experienced through legislation. Think about the hurt, think about the pain. And now we all of a sudden have a new emotional connection. And so the Old Testament spoke of the power of the Messiah that would come to inaugurate a kingdom that would transform hearts, that would set up for the spiritual and the eternal. But there was so much suffering going on in their lives that their filters began to, they were hoping for a Messiah that would change their immediate circumstances, that would deliver them. They no longer were looking for a Messiah that would establish a spiritual kingdom, but a political, earthly one. They wanted Messiah to topple Rome, to establish a new Jewish nation in which they could live freely, in which they no longer had to live under this pain, weakness, and suffering. And again, with that emotional connection, not necessarily agreeing, but we can empathize why they missed Messiah being Jesus. Because as I mentioned earlier, here's this guy from a nothing town with nothing special about him. He's a carpenter. Here's this teacher who claims to be Messiah who does not talk and seemingly doesn't care about an earthly political kingdom, but talks about a spiritual kingdom. Here's this alleged Messiah who calls followers, disciples, to help him unleash his movement. And he doesn't call the best of the best, but he calls a lineup of losers to follow him and to help lead. And here is this teacher from Nazareth who claimed to be Messiah that not only was tortured and executed, but was, was given a traitor's death that in Roman culture, if you were executed, it wasn't just a symbol that you lost, it was that you utterly lost. You are as weak as they come, and the power of Rome is absolute and should not be crossed. What did their filters lead them to desire? A temporary solution. What is the heart of God revealed in Jesus? To change us for all of eternity. And so what does the awesome power of God do? Well, it took this cross, the symbol of utter defeat, and forever, for all of eternity, it turned that cross into a symbol that there is no power like the power of Jesus. When we look at the cross on the top of the hill, when you look at the cross in your homes or on your jewelry or in picture, you think of victory, don't you? You think of love, of grace. It is now a symbol of power. And so what did that cross do? It established an eternal identity for us and established an eternal kingdom. It is not that God is uncaring about our suffering. It is not that God is unmoved and not hurt to see his children suffer. We know he cares because he entered into it as a jar of clay himself. But there are times in which Jesus does not deliver us from our weaknesses and sufferings because it will pay eternal dividends to instead experience his power to endure. Because it is only the power of cross, that brought, the power of God that brought victory to that cross can go into fragile, breakable jars of clay into their weakest, most limited, and darkest moment and empower them to live, to thrive, and to love as Jesus himself does. I mentioned social media a little bit earlier. And... Uh, I have a friend of mine named Rich who's a pastor in Queens in New York. And to compare our social media is to see a tale of two cities, so to speak. <laughs> see, if you were to follow me on social media, you are not gonna get deep thoughts of wisdom. <laughs> 
You are not going to get things that make you think and change your life. You are going to get an overabundance of quotes from 80s movies and pictures of food. <laughs> My friend Rich on the other end, if you were to follow him on social media, he often shares what God is teaching him and ooh, they are impactful. And on that note, I put something that he shared over Twitter uh, about a month or two ago, and it's this. Many of our limits are gifts to welcome, not obstacles to overcome. We were not created to transcend every limit, but to allow our limits to bring us to God, connect us more deeply to each other, and purify our hearts from ego-driven desires. And so to not only see Jesus, but to see the power of Jesus, we need a brand new paradigm in how we think of strength and weakness. Now that first point is big picture. These next two are gonna be more practical. And so your second fill in there, the second thing I wanna highlight is this. Transformation occurs by acknowledging our own limitations. Transformation occurs by acknowledging our own limitations. Doesn't that sound fun and exciting to do? <laughs> but again, it's important for the new paradigm. And if I'm honest with myself, almost on the daily, I'm reminded of just how weak and limited I am as a human being. But in particular, I was reminded of this in a big way several months ago. See, we were getting our kitchen, dining room area ready for Easter. In our family, after Easter services on Sunday, we invite a lot of family to come over to have a late lunch and to celebrate with us. And so the kitchen table we had at the time is too small to accommodate everybody that's there. And so it's simply unscrewed from the bottom, you remove the top, you take the base, and I would go and put it in the garage. This is something I have done numerous times before. And this particular time, as I'm doing this, my body decided to have another plan. And so as I picked up the first part, immediately my entire back spasmed and went out, painfully out of control. In my life, that's only happened to me maybe one other time before. And before some of you get judgy, yes, I was lifting with my knees, all right? So put that away. <laughs> But instead of being able to now put this table in my garage, I am now spending the next several hours laying on the living room floor, writhing in pain. Every so often, my precious children would come to check in on me and give me juice. It was very sweet. And as I remember staring at my ceiling, reflecting on how much this hurt, the Lord revealed something to me, that what hurt the most wasn't my back, but what hurt the most was my pride. Not so much in the fact that I couldn't move the table, but what hurt my pride was the reminder that I have weaknesses and limitations. And honestly, often in our ego and pride, we do not like acknowledging that or being reminded of that, do we? But this is why this is so vital for this new paradigm. See, to acknowledge our weaknesses and limitations is not for us to live in shame and guilt. But to acknowledge our weaknesses and limitations before the power of Jesus is now to acknowledge that our weaknesses and limitations are an opportunity to see and experience the awesome power of King Jesus. Again, when we look at the cross, that the symbol of utter defeat because of the power of Jesus was transformed into a symbol of God's victory and his beauty. That same power that brings victory and beauty to the cross is the same power that brings victory and beauty to each and every one of our weaknesses and our limitations. And so to experience this, we need to go before the presence of Jesus and either acknowledge the limitations we know or have him reveal the limitations that are in our heart. 
Now to get a little more practical in this, similar to like we did last week, I would love to encourage you that sometime in the next 24 hours, would you intentionally set time aside to go into the presence of Jesus? Whether it's through prayer, through worship, um, through the word, through journaling, whether it's in silence in a corner or walking around, whether it's alone or with a friend or a mentor or a spouse or your family, however you wanna do it, go before the presence of the Lord and talk to him about your weaknesses, the ones you know, the ones he wants to reveal to you. But specifically, I wanna focus in on what I call our character weaknesses. See, an opportunity for to see the awesome power of God is often in our physical or our situational weaknesses. And that is not to minimize this, that is equally as important. And we need God's strength in this. But to continue the thinking of Paul in this, he specifically talks about the state of our heart. And this is what I mean by character limits, character weaknesses, is where do you, where do I struggle in when it comes to loving and living like Jesus himself did. And so let me give you a couple examples of this. Last week, the focus was that the power of God, the awesome power of God, empowers us to show a beautiful mercy, to continue to be loving servants to not only those that oppose us, but those who are most passionately against us and those we would call our enemies. And I shared last week that that is a character weakness of mine to love those that attack me that are my enemies is not something I am good at and is definitely an area where I need God's strength. For some of us, maybe the weakness is in our stubbornness, that we have a plan for our lives and we are proud of our plan and it is a good plan, but God wants to alter or change the plan and our reaction is to say no. No, this is my plan. This is what's gonna work for me to achieve what I want to achieve in this life. And maybe that limit is what we need the power of God to soften and break through. For some of us, our weakness is that we don't live and daily experience the peace of Jesus. What I mean by that is one of the crafty tactics of the devil is that he has encouraged us to live lives that are always rushed, to live lives that are always on the move, that often our 24 hours are usually tornadoes of chaos, that we wake up and the mornings are frantic, whether it's getting everything I need to go to work, those of you that have families, whether it's getting the kids fed, getting everybody out the door, and then we go to work, or then we tackle our task lists, our projects, our errands, our chores, and that seems like there's never enough time to do what we need to do. And then it comes to after work or after school, and maybe I need to get my kids to 50 some odd places. Maybe I still have a long list of tasks and chores I need to do with a lot of work, and at some point we need to have dinner. At some point I need to make sure people are present and accounted for and go to bed and at some point maybe I'll sit down and watch an episode of The Office but then I got to get back to work because I have more tasks to do. I have some and at some point we collapse and fall asleep for a number of hours and we start the day over again and it's in that circle of chaos that when we hear where are you going to put time for Jesus we look at our lives and go okay where can I fit Jesus in and as somebody who has deeply struggled with that I have realized that that is a sinful question it is not about cramming Jesus into my chaos it is about him reorganizing my entire life and me learning to live in peace. Side note, peace does not mean we don't have intentionality. Peace doesn't, ju- doesn't even mean that we don't move fast at times. But there's a difference between fast and rushed. And that's where we miss the peace. For some of us, maybe our character limits are specific temptations, areas where we give in to sin, where there maybe it's a temptation of honesty, 
of authenticity. Maybe it's a temptation of substances, both legal and illegal. Maybe it's a temptation of pornography. Maybe it's the temptation of accolades, that do I have people telling me that I'm doing well, that am I living for their approval? But whatever it may be, the encouragement from the Apostle Paul that I want to give you is that we go into the presence of Jesus We acknowledge the limits we know. We allow him to reveal to us. We experience beautiful uh, repentance through it. And we then begin to be led by King Jesus into how he is going to show his strength in these areas of weaknesses and limitations. There in your note sheet, uh, theologian D.E. Garland puts it, he says that Paul wants those who see him only as crushed despairing, forsaken, or destroyed, to take a closer look. All of his sufferings have not destroyed him, not because he has made himself immune to it, but because he rests secure in the hands of God who upholds him. He faces rejection and dejection, but nothing will ever ultimately defeat or destroy him because of God's love and power. And then the final thing I want us to focus in on, your third fill-in is this. Transformation occurs by having a fixed focus on Jesus. Transformation occurs by having a fixed focus on Jesus. And what Paul means through this is that we would not be Christ followers who have a one-time only, a momentary focus on Jesus but to have a fixed focus means that we are beautifully committed to the long-term relationship of regularly experiencing the presence of the risen Jesus. And for many of us, that new paradigm means that we need to leave what I call a momentary Jesus experience. And what I mean by that is for many of us, There have been one or multiple times in our lives in which we have had a beautiful experience, in which we have seen and experienced the risen Jesus, the true Jesus, and we encountered him in a very real way. And it could happen in a variety of ways. For some of us, it it may have happened at a church service, whether through the music and the worship at an encounter service. For some of us, maybe it happened during a time of teaching that what the scripture was saying, it felt like the message was specifically written for you. For some of us, it's happened in a life group setting in which we are being prayed over by our brothers or sisters or we're praying over someone else. Or when somebody shares what they learned from God's word that week, that it's was just the thing your soul needed to hear as well. For some of us, maybe it happens in a retreat or a trip setting, like going on a spiritual retreat or experiencing a missions trip. For some of us, it happens in serving when we're using our gifts and wirings. Again, it can happen in a variety of ways, but for many of us, when we have that experience of the real Jesus, what we then see afterwards is that it leads to changes in our daily rhythms, doesn't it? It leads us to changing our rhythms to experiencing Jesus more, whether it's through time in the word and prayer, whether it's through experiencing victory in areas of sin and temptation, whether it's through being coming to church more and getting more involved. And as we see those rhythms changing, it feels good. It feels natural to make these changes, not in a negative way. It feels easy. We're empowered from that experience we have. But after a while, the emotions fade, don't they? After a while, what was feeling natural of pursuing and engaging Jesus in our rhythms no longer feels as natural, no longer feels as easy. We start to wonder, is something wrong with me? I don't feel God like I felt him before. Maybe my circumstances changed. Maybe my situation has changed. Maybe the emotions have changed, and this is just getting harder. And all of a sudden, that becomes a discouragement and a roadblock, and our rhythms, the new rhythms to seek Jesus begin to get harder and harder. They begin to get minimized. Before we know it, our life and our rhythm has gone back to what it was before we had that experience. 
And for many of us, we think, well, if I want to get back on track with Jesus, I need to have that experience again. And so what ends up happening is we chase moments rather than chasing Jesus himself. Now hear me very clearly. Those moments and experience are gifts from Jesus himself. Those moments and experiences are wonderful gifts that he gives us and we need them in our lives. But those moments, those gifts are not meant to have a beginning and an end. But that emotional rush rush is meant to be a catalyst that leads us to a new beautiful discipline in how we pursue Jesus. Now I love that word. Now, there is definitely a negative connotation to that word in which we think of being disciplined, but that's not how we're using it. Often in the church world, we talk about spending time with Jesus as being a spiritual discipline. And why I love that is to be disciplined in a relationship is to be committed to it, is to be committed to experiencing and spending time with the object of that relationship regardless of the emotions that you feel. At this point in my life as a pastor at Rocky Peak, I have officiated something along the lines of 5,000 weddings. To prove that point, I am officiating a wedding later this afternoon. And in every wedding, you have a series of vows. And often in their vows, they'll say something along the lines of, I'm committed to you for better or for worse in sickness and in health. And what are they really saying? They're saying, I am committed to be disciplined in my relationship with you. Regardless of the season, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how I feel, I am committed to the discipline of relationship. And that is what Paul means by us having a fixed focus on Jesus. There in your note sheet, I have a, I have a scripture from Ephesians 1. I'm going to move past that right now just because we're running low on time. But why I put that there is that Paul prays for the church at Ephesus for them to experience more in their commitment to discipline. And what's extraordinary about that is that this was the opposite of the church at Corinth. That before these verses, Paul is commending that he has heard wonderful things about their spiritual lives and their spiritual growth. And he determines that the most important thing he could pray for them is that they would grow in their discipline to experience Jesus more. And so that's what it means to fix our eyes is to have, take intention, intentional and deliberate actions. And so this doesn't have to start in major ways. As I close things, I want to give you an example I've been seeing in my own life through the discipline that the Lord has been calling my wife to engage, Megan, lately in our household. See, Megan and I have been going through a season in which we are being reminded of our weakness. And so the Lord has called her to fix her, uh, fix her eyes on Jesus specifically through the bookends of her day, the way she starts her day and the way she ends her day. And so she simply began waking up 15 minutes early and she goes to the kitchen table. And before the chaos of the kids bursting out of their rooms or me stumbling into the kitchen to get coffee, what she does is she simply spends 15 minutes with the Lord. Prayer, worship, journaling, whatever the Lord wants to do that day. And that small act has completely transformed our family's mornings. That now we are still intentional, but there is a new peace. There is a new joy because of that focus and discipline. It has transformed her work day, how she deals with difficult customers and people in her jobs. And the Lord has asked her to then focus on how she ends her day, meaning that before she goes down, he asks that one of the last things she hears is his word. And so she's been using the free Bible app, YouVersion, because it reads the Bible to you. And so often I'll be in my room reading at the end of the night and I'll hear the Bible being spoken out loud from the living room. There have been times when I've walked into the bedroom for her to already be asleep, and she fell asleep to the Bible app reading the Word of God to her. Now, these are small changes that she has taken the calling to 
be disciplined in, and they've already had a radical impact on the life of our family. And all that to say, all that to say that fixing our focus in Jesus starts by just simply taking the next step. Not a giant leap, but what is the next step in your discipline of commitment? And so as we close things out, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. We're going to close out our time with another uh, series of just declaring these beautiful truths of who God is through a time of singing. This is going to be the time in which we receive our tithes, our gifts, and offerings. And again, as I often say, let this not just be words, but the true prayer and declaration of our souls. Let's, let's pray together. Jesus, you are strong. Jesus, you are strong when we are weak. Jesus, you are strong when we are limited. Jesus, you are strong when we are suffering. And it's in those moments in which you show us and you remind us just how strong you are and how your power, your strength is what gives us identity and worth in this life and for the eternity to come. And so as we leave this passage, as we sing these songs, let them be a declaration of the truth of who you are and the truth of who you are transforming us to be. Thank you for these words. Thank you for the tithes and just the faithful servants that are continuing to allow Rocky Peak to do what it does, Jesus. It's in your name that we all said, amen. Let's stand together.